All right, good evening, everybody. Welcome, my name is Maureen Conway. I'm Vice President for Policy Programs, Executive Director of the Economic Opportunities Program here at the Aspen Institute. I'm so delighted to welcome you to this evening's event. Um, we're thrilled to be doing this together, Ida and me. Um, and uh, I, I don't have lots of announcements. I just want to um, say a, a big thank you to Prudential. Ida and I have been really doing a lot of work around reconnecting work and wealth. Um, and we're really grateful for, for a major investment from the Prudential Foundation that's really helped us move that work along both individually and collectively, and also with our colleagues in the Forum for Community Solutions and the Future of Work Initiative. So, um, so we're thrilled that Prudential is not only the lead sponsor for tomorrow's summit, but also supporting a lot of the um, other deep work that we're doing here around these issues in the Institute. And my one announcement that I wanted to make is some of you may be having a little agenda confusion. Um, you may have seen Paul Osterman as a speaker on the original agenda, unfortunately. Um, that was our snow casualty, so, um, uh, and, uh, but we are, are super, super grateful to Jared Bernstein, um, a, a friend of both of our programs and a great friend of the Aspen Institute for being willing to pitch in at the last minute and join us for this conversation. So, um, so that explains that. That's great. And I also just want to echo Maureen uh, in welcoming all of you and just saying what a, what a joy it was coming back to Aspen almost with an explicit purpose of figuring out how we could take some pretty siloed conversations about people's financial lives and uh, the role of wealth and savings and the role of debt and volatility in, in, in their lives and connect it more to people who are really dedicating their careers to explicitly thinking about career paths and quality jobs. So all of the work that we're doing in this Reconnecting Work and Wealth Initiative is a giant moving live experiment to see how it is when you put people together who have different day jobs each day, trying to extend themselves because at the end of the day, my consumers are Maureen's workers and vice versa. And for all of America, we want them to be thinking about how these issues connect. So we actually started the work together um, with Prudential's help and with the Ford Foundation and many others uh, at our uh, first economic security summit last summer, or last fall. And we're gonna start off with a quick video uh, now, just to give a few snippets of what people were saying about the issue of reconnecting work at wealth uh, at the summit in October. This theme of reconnecting work and wealth is incredibly important. Work is really the primary means by which people support themselves. Wealth is the primary means by which individuals can protect themselves against sudden or large drops in income. That means if you are working a full-time job, uh, you can live a middle-class life. You can. Uh, put a roof over your head, you can feed your family, you can take a vacation once a year, you can have that retirement security and healthcare security that comes with uh, being in the middle class and you can make a difference in your workplace and in your community. I'd say it's the theme of this conference which is the increased divergence between overall economic growth and the well-being, the prosperity, the wealth of middle class and poor households. But our system of work and wealth isn't working well. I think that people have lost a sense that if they work hard and play by the rules, they're going to be able to get ahead in life and provide a better future for their families. And when you lose that sense, it's absolutely crushing for our society and for our democracy. You see it in the politics and you see it in a lot of other indicators, but a lot of folks think that no matter how hard they work, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to get ahead, that they're going to be able to accumulate wealth. So being in workforce development, we've learned that jobs aren't enough, right? So to get a person a job, 
is one thing, and that's a great thing. But then how do we help people manage that money? So if you think about families and the kinds of decisions they have to make, some of the most difficult involve the risks they face. What if I lose my job? People are working really hard to make a wage, but yet if they're not saving and actually providing for their financial security in the future, their families will continue to remain unstable. And so I think reviving that basis for middle-class American hope is the central challenge that we're facing. Yeah, it's interesting. I think so oftentimes we look for the kind of one bullet solution to everything. So it's income, or it's jobs, or it's assets. But clearly, it's all of those things put together. We sit at the intersection of workforce development and financial education because I don't think you can do either without the other effectively. Not to a point where you're going to help to transform a person's quality of life. And how do we make sure that both sides of the house, on people who are working in the labor market and people who are working on the financial market, are talking to each other and understanding how this work collaborates? So it's incredibly important that as workforce development organizations, as employers, are thinking about how do we reconnect these people to quality jobs, at the same time, they need to provide the right types of financial benefits and resources and tools to ensure these families have economic stability for their future. I think that there's a knowledge base, both in terms of how people see organizing and power on the wages side, and how people see policy and research on the asset side, that um, if brought together in the right way around a core set of issues could be really transformative for working people in this country. Uh, good evening, everyone, and I'm going to be your third welcomer from the Aspen Institute. Uh, I'm Elliot Gerson, Ex Executive Vice President, and it's really terrific to see so many of you uh, here tonight on the eve of our second summit on inequality and opportunity. Uh, I'm glad that the, we got the video with IT working. I thought there were some wonderful snippets there that give us a flavor of the kind of conversations that we've had around these topics and the quality of much deeper conversations uh, that we're going to be having. Uh, while apologizing for little IT glitches, uh, for those of you who haven't been here before, I also apologize for this pillar in the middle of the room. Uh, some of you have seen this pillar before. It is not the only reason that we're actually moving to new offices, uh, but it's among the reasons. Uh, so I look forward to having all of you here at the new Aspen uh, Washington headquarters. Many of you know us. We also have, of course, a campus in Aspen and offices in New York and in, actually now all over the world. But Washington will remain our headquarters, and we have a wonderful new building. We look forward to you welcome, welcoming all of you uh, for that we'll probably move to in December with, without any, any pillars like that. It would have cost quite a few middle-class incomes to remove that pillar, <laughs> so we decided that we would not do it. Well, one thing I want to just do, and again, uh, we can't thank uh, our, our supporters and friends like Prudential enough for this, is just remind some of you, many of you may know one little piece of the Institute, and like many institutes, that tends to create a sense of multiple silos that don't necessarily talk to each other. You know, we are fundamentally about, are an organization about values-based leadership. We're about public education. We're about changing the conversation around critical issues. And we have policy programs across a broad uh, 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 swath of American domestic policy and, and foreign policy. But if anything, we have a critical mass around issues 
of inequality and opportunity. And depending on how directly focused our policy programs are on that, you know, we have anywhere from three to as many as eight or ten that grapple with those issues. So in a sense, they're really at the heart of what we do, and I think most of us believe that there are no more critical issues in the country. Uh, than, than the issues that we're talking about today. They relate to everything else. They affect everything else. And I think uh, as a matter of fundamental, you know, moral definition of the country, uh, there's nothing more important. So, um, the, you know, whether, and, and I mentioned Prudential, it's sometimes hard to get these programs to actually work with each other. Not that people like Ida and Maureen don't love to work with each other, and you can tell that, and the other programs that are involved in this, the same thing. But unfortunately, in many cases, their funders are interested in a particular focus. And like most organizations, we have to respond to where the funding is. So it's only when we have really far-sighted funders who recognize the synergies across programs that the real opportunities from, for coordination and cooperation are able to be advanced. So you know these programs, whether they're researching, exploring, and advancing ideas uh, to restore the promise of work or strengthen the middle class uh, or just to build an economy of shared prosperity, uh, they're all better off by, by working together. You've heard, you saw the principal uh, uh, actors of the two sponsoring, uh, the key sponsoring organizations, the Economic Opportunities Program of Maureen, the Financial Security Program of Ida, and uh, also want to note the Future of Work Initiative, the Forum for Community Solutions, all of them really focused on this important topic of reconnecting work and, and wealth. And with the help of Prudential, we're finding new ways to really dig into these issues uh, in, in, in ways that we were not able to before. Um, so we hope the discussion tonight will just prime you for what will uh, be happening tomorrow. And now it's just my simple pleasure and really a great privilege uh, uh, to introduce uh, Lotta Reddy, Vice President of Corporate Social Responsibility at Prudential Financial and President of the Prudential Foundation. Uh, her very impressive biography, I think, is in some materials uh, that you have, so uh, I will not repeat that but just offer a few highlights. Uh, she leads a team at Prudential that sets the vision and strategy for the company's uh, investment, philanthropic, corporate contribution, and employee engagement activities. And under her leadership, and this is absolutely extraordinary, and I'm not missing a digit here when I say this, Prudential has pledged to build an impact investment portfolio of $1 billion by 2020. Uh, she holds degrees from the University of Michigan and uh, Emory Law School. She's obviously an extremely busy woman, and we are honored to have her with us uh, this evening uh, to offer some framing remarks for the conversation that's about to happen. Thank you. Thank you so much, Elliot, and good evening. On behalf of all of us at Prudential, I just want to say how uh, excited we are to be working with the Aspen Institute to bring together these really crucial conversations on wealth and work. Now, for us, it really extends an ongoing conversation that we've been having inside of Prudential, and one that is actually rooted in our founding. Over 140 years ago, the company that is now known as Prudential Financial was created uh, as a way to afford working families a way to 
uh, enhance and protect their financial well-being through affordable insurance. Now, in the words of our founder, the justification of our business was to advance the efforts of our policyholders and their families for better economic and social condition. So that was our original charter. Now, over a century later, we've grown into a financial services leader, helping to meet the protection, retirement, and asset management needs of people around the world. But our commitment to advancing society and shared success remains strong. What has changed is, as I said, we're a global corporation, right, and, uh, competing and operating in an ever-changing economy. This means that we see the connection between work and wealth from multiple perspectives. First, as an employer, right, we have 50,000 employees around the world, so we see firsthand the need to address the financial wellness of our own employees in ways that are mutually beneficial. Second, uh, as you know, our employer customers, right, are coming to us and looking to us for solutions to address the financial strains and stresses of their own workforce. And third, we certainly uh, are familiar, right, through our partnerships with people like Aspen and many of you in the room familiar with these issues and the challenges that we see today, right, and, and the focus that we all have on how the changing nature of work and changes in how our society invests in people, businesses, infrastructure, and communities are impacting, right, major shifts in our labor and financial markets, as well as how wealth is created and shared. And so as we as a firm continue to address the financial concerns of a world that is living longer, younger, and faster, we see that the American dream, right, that shared ideal we all have, that if people are willing to work hard, they should be able to achieve some semblance of financial security and ultimately prosperity, is for many American workers slipping out of reach. 21st century innovation and structural shifts are transforming work far faster than our current safety nets and policies can keep pace. These changes have transferred economic risk from broad structures to the fragile balance sheets of American households, causing financial instability for many. This instability erodes the foundation for success and the ability for people to reach their goals and achieve their dreams. Working people need to find solid ground before they or anybody in their family can take the steps needed that lead to upward mobility. A crucial component is, of course, a quality job. Now, I think we all agree that a quality job, at a minimum, is safe that it provides right, a livable wage, that it has a regular and predictable schedule, and that it offers essential benefits. Financial stability also involves having sufficient assets and protections in place, so savings and insurance, that can help smooth income volatility right, and expense fluctuations. And these fluctuations occur when people have a health emergency, or when they're between jobs, or when their jobs don't give them regular hours, and when, when they retire as well. Working people can save only when they have enough income to support the basic needs for themselves and their families. They're also better equipped when their jobs provide them with the financial products and services and tools that facilitate saving, things like retirement plans and insurance, again, that help them to weather emergencies. A person's ability to earn an adequate income and build wealth is in turn essential to achieving household financial security. Now, given the intrinsic connection between work and wealth, we must consider them together, looking at how both labor and financial markets influence the opportunities people have to achieve long-term financial security. Simply said, we must reconnect work and wealth. 
To that end, Prudential and the Aspen Institute are partnering to advance critical dialogue on how employers, policymakers, advocates, and communities can create solutions to address the growing fragility of the American worker. The partnership builds on a longstanding relationship we've had and was born out of the shared belief that we must bring together leaders from across sectors like all of you to learn from each other and collaborate to find ways to create opportunities for all Americans to earn a decent living and build wealth. We aim to make reconnecting work and wealth a key tenant of the national economic agenda, broadening the national conversation so that it's not talking about the problem separately, but together. And in doing so, and in partnership with all of you, we hope to highlight these issues while also identifying solutions to help build wealth for financially vulnerable people so they move toward financial resilience, stability, mobility, and prosperity. Thank you. And now it is my pleasure to introduce Melanie Trotman, who will be moderating this evening's conversation. Melanie? Well, thank you, um, Latha for, and Elliot, for your introductions. Um, I'm going to start by interviewing our panelists. And, you know, they've researched or actually worked with individuals and families who are grappling with this issue of how to turn work into wealth. Exploring questions such as, what financial challenges do people face? What are the barriers to building wealth? How do people manage their paychecks and navigate financial and labor markets, and are they doing it well enough? What tools and resources are available or need to be available to help them? Um, so I'm going to interview them about these issues and the ways in which strategies might be improved to turn work into wealth. You do have their bios in your folders, but I'm going to uh, introduce them and give you a little brief overview. We've got Tom Shapiro here. He's the Pocross Professor of Law and Social Policy at Brandeis University. Juan Salgado, President and CEO of the Instituto del Progreso Latino. Justine Zinkin, Chief Executive Officer of Neighborhood Trust. And Jarrett Bernstein, Senior Fellow at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. Juan is focused in part on alternative job training programs and the importance of stability as a precursor for financial mobility, including geographic mobility, which is you know, a pretty hot topic right now. Jared has researched federal and state economic and fiscal policies and trends and employment and earnings. Um, he's also looked at the effects of financial and housing markets on consumers. Justine has stressed the importance of people having trust with their financial service providers and having transparent products and plans. She's also suggested that consumers' financial challenges could be addressed more often in the workplace. And Tom has, meanwhile, heavily researched wealth inequality and the racial wealth gap and the ways in which different benefits that people receive can yield different returns. So I am going to start with you, Jared. Uh, you know, we know that low and moderate income Americans today face significant challenges accessing economic stability. Um, let's start by looking at work. There's been a lot of talk about how work has changed and how wages are stagnant, yet skill requirements are rising. Putting aside for the moment what work might look like in the future, how has it changed over the past several decades, and what do you see as the drivers of that change? Well, let me begin where Latha kind of left off. I thought she teed things up nicely. Uh, my view is that structural changes have occurred in the economy 
that have interacted with policy in a way that's really eroded the connective tissue between workplace policy and income and thereby work, work and wealth. So let me just unpack that a little bit. Economies change. They evolve over time. That's a good thing. And we hear a lot about globalization and technology as kind of the, the two factors. Any you know, the standard economist will tell you what's, what's uh, behind a lot of the kinds of changes. That's, that's what, that's what uh, he or she would tell you. But that's only part of the story because these changes interact with a policy framework and they interact with dynamics uh, 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 including immigration, racism, and macroeconomic issues and politics and political economy. And again, I think the heart of the problem that um, I've worked on with, uh, it's been my fortune to work on with Aspen for a while, the thing we're confronting is that the connective tissue that used to for at least some groups of people, ensure that work was better connected to income has eroded. So let me add a statistic to the, to the mix right, right out of the gate here. If you look uh, at uh, the uh, connection between median compensation, so middle class earnings, median compensation, not just wages, but all in benefits, and productivity growth, which is output per hour, you will find that they both doubled from the late 40s to the late 70s. Um, now, that doesn't mean, and Tom will tell you, that doesn't mean that everybody w was uh, uh, doing as well. Of course, discrimination was very much in play, uh, uh, and not just racial discrimination, but gender discrimination as well. But it is true that median compensation doubled, along with productivity from the late 40s to the late 70s. Since then, productivity is up 75 80%. Median compensation is up 9% since, se since 1979. That's you know, 35, 36 years of stagnant earnings. And you have to ask yourself, how is a middle class family supposed to get ahead and be able to put, uh, not, only, uh, 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 not, not only be able to get ahead and meet their basic needs, but be able to, to build wealth? And it, it's that kind of breakdown between overall economic growth and the uh, compensation or incomes of, of middle class families that uh, I think is an exemplar of this of this eroding connective tissue. I've got a lot more to say about that, but let me stop there, just kind of set the table. <laughs> Thank you. So Tom, uh, you've done extensive research on asset development and the importance of something you call employment capital to building wealth. First of all, can you just tell us briefly what is employment capital? And then tell us what your research tells us about the challenges that face low and moderate income Americans, especially communities of color, who, who need to build and access um, wealth sure, and, and, and opportunity. Great, great question. Yeah. Um, I know there's a lot of wisdom in the room, so I, I, I'm not, I don't have a, a, a horizon of just having the only answers or ideas here. But let me pick off from a point that Jarrett um, was talking about. In 1970, the largest employer in the United States was General Motors, approximately half a million or more uh, employees, largely unionized, um, good wages, um, uh, a good package of benefits, and I'll come back to that in a moment. Fast forward in that period that Jared was talking about from 1970 to 2013, the largest employer is Walmart, 1.3 million people. Uh, very, very few, if any, unions at Walmarts, uh, virtually no benefits at Walmarts, and for me that captures that transition that has happened both in the macro economy globally but also due to the intersection with policy. So 
for me, part of that intersection has to do with even going back to the 1970s and understanding um, life might have been pretty good if you were a, gen a GM worker because of the union and because of the work stability. That the linkage there between income earned at work and wealth was a pretty solid one. And in a sense, that was an exemplar of um, employment capital. Employment capital for, for me is the understanding that what we get out of our work is a lot more than just the identity and the paycheck. It provides us some protection from unforeseen accidents, mishaps, family crises, from our car axle breaking in the ice in, in DC on, on storm days. It provides a bit of security and it should provide opportunities. And at the end of the day, it also should provide some kind of retirement security. And those are the systems that have come undone. The systems that some workers, and I think it's really important to underscore that point, some workers were able to be invested in that system from post-World War II up until the 1970s. And it's come unwound for a lot of workers since then. But for me, the map that overlays that structure of who has employment capital and those benefits and those decent quality jobs with, with job ladders and you can actually go somewhere, the overlay, the map for me is occupational segregation. It's where women and workers of color were largely concentrated and still are largely concentrated in the workforce. Go to a hospital, go to a university, go to a restaurant, go to a hotel, go to a train station, go to an airport, your eyes tell you what the sociologists know. So let me stop there for now. Okay, thank you. So I want to hear from our practitioners about how, how these challenges are actually being felt on the ground in communities. I'm going to start with Justine and then turn to Juan. Uh, Justine, tell us a bit about what you do, your work at Neighborhood Trust, um, and, and what the greatest challenges are that face the the people that you serve, both in terms of work and in terms of wealth. Sure. So we are a relatively small nonprofit. We serve about 7,000 people annually in New York City. We are a financial empowerment organization. So for the past 15 years, we have been delivering trusted financial counseling uh, and linking that to credit union products and being particularly effective because our financial counselors have worked within trusted and relevant settings, nonprofit organizations, government agencies, and now for the last five years, employers. And we really uh, realized over the years that while our framing had always been a financial one, trying to enable people to be better connected to healthy financial products, uh, the reality was that as we were seeing individuals in the community, First of all, the level of financial distress was overwhelming. And secondly, we realized that everybody we were serving had a job. And they were working hard, but they still were spinning their wheels. And when we examined the opportunity to help and the underlying systems that could be at play, we realized the root opportunity, perhaps, was the employer, where people got paid. Uh, so for the last five years, we've been embedding financial counseling and support systems at work. Our financial counselors today are in 15 different employers. We're serving about 2,000 people at work annually. 
And it's really, uh, you know, a few things are really striking about what we see on a daily basis. Again, as we're delivering one-on-one -on -one financial counseling to workers via their employer. Uh, you know, first and foremost, uh, what we offer is trust and a trusted relationship. Uh, and I can't emphasize enough how uh, what we hear from our clients is that the ability to take control of their finances and feel like they can convert wages into savings is very much stymied by uh, complete mistrust of the system, of the financial services system. Um, the opportunity, conversely, is that even though there has been this changing nature of work and a changing relationship between employer and employee, what, is op what gives us optimism is that even though our typical client has more than one job and where we're serving them isn't their only place of employment, they still actually do largely trust their employer and they are eager to make financial decisions at work and they believe that the services and benefits that they're offered at work are credible. So there is actually greater take up and greater willingness to sort of take action with their finances in the workplace compared to the other settings that we see. So there's sort of this note of optimism. And what I'll also add and eager to talk more about this is again, as we are a financial services organization, but increasingly focused on the workplace as the um, sort of platform for uh, encouraging financial health. Um, you know, what we see is that there are numerous pain points for the employer as well. Uh, employers are um, demanding our services in growing numbers. So the two largest hospital networks in New York City have approached us because they have told us that their employees are demanding they do better when it comes not just to wages but to overall support around financial health. When we pick apart the employer, we realize there are people in the employer, the HR departments, who are struggling because they're offering an array of services and supports that go underutilized. Uh, they're facing employees asking if they can borrow against their paycheck, against their 401k. Again, there are workplace systems that we believe could be better leveraged to help wages go further. HR departments and employers eager to figure out how those systems can be working more efficiently. Um, and yet today, the, the system does feel largely broken. And overall, our clients who are working uh, very much feel that their wages aren't really translating into uh, financial stability. OK, thank you. And Juan, tell us about your work at uh, the Institute and, and how these challenges collectively affect you know, the individuals and families that you serve. Yeah, so we're, we're in Chicago. We're uh, in the primarily Latino community in Chicago. We've been around for 40 years. And for 40 years, we've held a major belief that education is the power and freedom to live and enjoy the best that this country has to offer, the power to provide for our families and ensure a better quality of life. And so if you walk into, uh, we, we, again, we serve 10,000 people a year. If you walk into my center, uh, on any given day, you're going to see people learning their own native language that are in a primary school. You're going to see people in adult education, English classes. You're going to see folks in bridge programs towards manufacturing and healthcare and retail careers um, that will be higher income for them and growth possibilities for them. We have a great partnership with our city colleges. We run schools for kids that are out of school as well as uh, STEM-oriented high schools. 
you're going to see a place that, uh, that is full of people that believe that if they tap into the power of education, if they go to work eight hours a day, and then after their eight-hour shift, they come to my center for four to five hours instruction, four to five days a week, you know, there'll be a great job ahead, right? And there are, by the way, some of the pain points for the employers we work with is we're not building a pipeline fast enough to get the people from our community that can do this work, right, that can be college students. Let me just say one thing that is really important, um, that, that, that most of the students that we work with start at the sixth grade reading level, eighth grade reading level, right? When you think about that kind of a student, most of our colleges, community colleges in this country, you know, haven't figured out how to really tap in to the power and strength of that student. And that student is a worker right now, by and large, that is in a very low-wage occupation. And they know it. They know it. They know that if they stay in that occupation, the possibility of income growth is severely limited. They're doing everything they can with the dollars they're getting in. I mean, you know, when I look at the amount of money they make, you know, I, I think, what a terrible money manager I am. <laughs> really. I mean, think about it. And I used to work for an organization that helped people to buy homes. And let me just tell you a couple stories because they're instructive. You would have immigrants that are making just about nothing, and they'd walk in with $10,000 in savings. <laughs> right, that they had kept in the home. And then you'd have these young professionals that had gotten degrees, and they'd walk in with a pile of debt. <laughs> they couldn't buy a home. And their incomes were very, very different, right? Um, and so, you know, from our perspective, you know, as an education institution, you know, there still is a power in education. There still is the possibility of upward mobility if more and more uh, people tapped into that power, if we brought it to deeper and deeper levels of community um, and, and learners, right? And, and yet, you know, let's be honest, you know, I'm also in the community, right? <laughs> uh, if we ever get that right, it would be beautiful. And a lot of people would have a better jobs. And I guarantee you, because they come from a place where they don't have great jobs right now, they do a lot with the new money they get, right? Uh, but even if we got to optimization, still a lot of people out there making just too little. Okay. Do you well, want to say something? I, I'd like to raise a, a question, one that maybe you could speak to, which is, so in my work, I look a lot at you know, what the economists would call the demand side of the economy, which is the availability of good jobs. And of all kinds of jobs, but in your case, I'm asking you about the availability of good jobs. Because in your opening statement, you kind of suggested that if people can take the kind of dedication that you're describing and that your, your center affords them an opportunity to express and, and, and improve, improve their skills, their educational credentials, that there's oftentimes a good job waiting for them. And, and I think one of the things I worry about is that's not 
the case in enough places throughout the country. And so, you know, clearly there's this problem on the supply side, what you described in terms of people's, um, you know, skill levels and all that. But I want you to, I'd be interested in your reaction to, you know, uh, uh, what kinds of constraints you see on the demand side, the quality, uh, I mean, the quantity of available good jobs for the type of folks that are coming out of your center. Yeah, your, your point is spot on. I mean, I'm in Chicago. I'm in a metropolitan area. There, I'm also serving a population that's uh, underrepresented in certain sectors. Uh, and so, uh, it, it, so, obviously, it's very clear. If you go to other places, other metropolitan regions, other rural economies, what we're doing uh, you know, can't exactly be replicated. And again, as I said, if, if in fact, we optimized and we met every employer need in our region tomorrow, we'd still have a whole lot of people out uh -huh. there, okay? <laughs> we'd still have a whole lot of other people out there uh -huh. with very low incomes yeah. and um, with, with less than optimal possibilities. So by no means am I saying, I am saying though, as, as you know, someone who believes um, in education that we can't allow the narrative, right, that education doesn't matter to seep into particularly low-income communities. Yeah. Because you know what? That, that's, that's wrong. That's wrong. <laughs> okay. Well, um, I think you all know that tomorrow is the summit on inequality and opportunity. And we all know that inequality has multiple dimensions. Income inequality is, I think, what we hear about the most, but wealth inequality is even more um, dramatic. And uh, the race, gender, and ethnicity dimensions of that inequality are something I think um, trouble all of you sitting here. Um, so I want to start with uh, Juan and Justine and ask, you know, what's your sense of how these issues of inequality are being recognized and addressed in your communities? You, you touched on it a little bit. Um, maybe Justine, start mm -hmm. with you. And, and do you see that there are more or fewer opportunities for people as they're trying to gain access um, to work and well? Yeah, so again, we're in New York City. Uh, we're serving individuals who similarly are in fast food, retail, healthcare. Uh, over 90% of the individuals we're serving are people of color. Um, and you know, when I look at, if I take one particular example, when we look at home, you know, working with home health aides, it's 100% basically female. Um, and we study what we can do for these clients of ours. We believe that, um, you know, that there's, that this workforce is, as we all know, a highly skilled workforce. Uh, delivering a service that impacts all of our lives, right? We all have um, home health aid at some point in our life. Um, and yet it is a very underpaid industry. And our uh, workers are struggling financially because not only are their wages low, but because of this volatility in income. Um, because they are constantly um, getting new jobs, losing jobs, working part time, uh, they're struggling. And so what we try to um, help our clients do is to actually come up with some way that they feel like they have some visibility on what's coming. Um, we help them build a cash flow plan. Uh, we 
break things down into their component parts so there is a way for them to feel like they are setting aside some funds for that shock that is coming. Um, and to echo your remarks, uh, the level of um, financial astuteness and um, smarts and uh, um, sort of ability to stretch a dollar um, is incredible, but it really doesn't go far enough. Uh, so the typical client we serve, you know, they're making about $18,000 a year, and they've got about $7,000 of consumer debt. Um, when you pick apart how to improve that balance sheet, it is uh, you know, virtually impossible, really. Um, and the challenge is that families want to save, and there's this conundrum around helping, figure, helping them figure out how to balance reducing debt and saving. Uh, so what I would say is, Employers are recognizing that their employees deserve a, um, a, a better uh, share of the wealth, but I, I really struggle with what we can do to um, encourage that asset development outcome for an occupation like that. I'd say the one you know, note of optimism is as the labor market tightens and as there's more demand, um, perhaps there will be some competitive pressures, um, but it is it is very, very tough. I mean, the numbers, we work and we help people to reduce their debt. But again, if you look at the, their balance sheets, um, I don't want to claim that we are going to help them permanently get out of debt. They are going to cycle in and out of debt while they are in an occupation such as this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just, home health aides, I wrote about labor for the Wall mm -hmm. Street Journal for eight years, and I covered some regulations related mm -hmm. to that. And you know, they were supposed to begin getting overtime pay. Um, mm -hmm. Industry fought it. So, I mean, just at that base level of just even pay, yeah. there's been quite a bit of resistance for those workers. Yeah. Um, so, I, I yeah, just, just, I mean, I just add we, we were part of the LISC initiated effort to create financial opportunity centers for, you know, from its inception. Mm -hmm. And um, what's interesting is that when, when they you know, dug a little deeper, here we were doing some of the same financial coaching that Justine has mm -hmm. um, uh, talked about. But, uh, but, but because we were putting people into, uh, as a system, right, we were putting people into just a regular entry level job with no real career path with low wages. Um, you, you didn't really see a demonstrably, you know, <coughs> big impact <laughs> okay. on, you know, their well-being at the end of the day. What you did do, by the way, what you did see is that financial opportunity actually, um, services actually assisted with job retention, mm -hmm. right? Which is interesting mm -hmm. to think about, right? Because um, there's so many benefits to ensuring financial wellness. And I would just say from an educator's standpoint, during the education process, mm -hmm sustaining, so this whole thing of perseverance, whether it's perseverance in the job or it's perseverance in education, requires this level of financial planning when you're making so, so little money. Um, so I think that's where the value is. If we want people to persist, this is the kind of support that we need to, we need to provide. Okay. Tom, you've looked specifically at racial inequality. So um, yeah. th these are, these are stories, um, and plug. <laughs> My book came out yesterday, Toxic Inequality. Um, Congratulations. We interviewed over uh, close to 200 families and their stories um, between 1998 and, and 2011. The stories add up to a landscape, though. 
And what the landscape is, in terms of wealth inequality, is something that you know, I hope the data is familiar to people. 1% of the population, the wealthiest 1%, owns 42% of the financial wealth in the United States, largely driven by the top 0.1%. In fact, over the last three decades, the wealth of that group has increased threefold. The financial wealth of the bottom, air quote, 90%, 90% is not a bottom. <laughs> bottom 90% has declined. That's what the data tells. That's what the landscape. But there's also a geography within that. And the geography within that is that when we think about racial inequality, ethnic inequality, we in the past have tended to think only in income terms. And the metric there is the typical and median African-American family has about 60 to 62 cents on every earned dollar that the white family has. And similarly, very close for the Latino family. But that picture is not complete. To complete that picture, we also have to add in what family wealth is about. So 62% um, African-American to white. When you look at family financial wealth, the average African-American family has less than 8 cents in wealth for every dollar of wealth that the typical or median white family has. Mm -hmm. The typical Latino family has less than 10 cents, it's nine point something, uh, to every dollar that the white family has in, in average family financial wealth. Right. Those aren't just data. That tells us a lot about the ability of some groups and the challenge of other groups to protect themselves in the labor market, to protect themselves from that volatility to not having paid sick leave and the impact of that, to not being fortunate enough to be employed by an employer that offers a, a structured pension system where they may seed it, they may contribute. In fact, about 65% of white workers work in such institutions compared to 54% uh, of African-American workers compared to 38% of Latino workers. And that tells me something, again, about segments of the economy, sectors of the economy, and occupational segregation, and where people work. And overlaid on that, of course, I think is the, uh, uh, is, is the question of worker organization and, and unions is a very strong part of that picture. So that's, to me, what the, the stories add up to the landscape and the geography that are important for us to think about. Well, yeah, I, Jerry, I want to hear from I, you about. Well, I just, just a lot of this is kind of coming together for me. <laughs> if I can just sort of. Well, uh, but, I, but I, okay, say what you like. Yeah, but I want you to. I want to make sure that you address how the choices made by business to reward work. You know how that's having a. a that, that's an part of. Here. That's part of where I'd like to okay. try to go here. Try to go because I want to sort of try to, uh, it's, like I said, try to put a lot of this together. So, I mean, the thing that I'm hearing from. From Juan and Justine is that there are a lot of people who have not just great intentions, but are willing to follow through on those great intentions. Correct. They're willing to put in the equity sweat to to accomplish mm -hmm. their goals. And what you just heard from Tom and from myself earlier when I talked about the structural deficiencies in the economy, the erosion of the of, of the policy tissue that used to connect income and and work for more people. Um, is a, a, a set of developments that have, uh, in, in, in Tom's research, led to tremendous concentration of wealth. So let me get political for half a second here. 
This is Washington. Um, uh, wealth, that, that the wealth inequality that Tom described is interacting with our, uh, I, I view it as a deeply toxic system of money and politics where uh, the, uh, you know, where, where funders can essentially buy the politics and the politicians they want. And, and thank you. Uh, and, and, and much of what they've done is responsible for an erosion of policy that's making it more difficult for folks with great intentions and willing to put in the sweat equity to, to realize those intentions to get where they need to go. So you talk about competitiveness in the labor market. That was a great point. But we've been at full employment only 30% of the time since 1979. Right. We've been at full employment only 30% of the time since 1979. So those competitive pressures have largely been absent. The minimum wage is a piece of this connective tissue that has eroded. You mentioned overtime. You know, the overtime, uh, the Labor Department under, under Barack Obama was actually trying to do something about that. And unfortunately, it's, it's going to be unwound now. There are a set of work supports, the earned income tax credit, housing subsidies, nutritional subsidies. You know, these are key um, work supports that help the kinds of people that you're talking about um, uh, uh, take, the, take, the, uh, take the earnings that they're, they're getting from, from their job, and in a full employment economy, having some competitive pressure to boost those earnings, with a, a set of work supports that bring their incomes up to a level where they actually might be able to put more aside. So to me, we've got a problem, <laughs> we've got a set of problems, and it has to do with wealth concentration, money and politics, and the erosion of a set of policies, including work supports, that could really help the kinds of persons you're mm -hmm. serving connect to this economy in a way that would, would really bring work and wealth together in a way that, that we want to. So, um, yes, sounds like uh, so let's. I, I'm gonna, mm -hmm. I want to look in an optimistic direction here. Mm -hmm. And um, Justine, I want to have you yeah. tell me what you've learned from your efforts to address yeah. these issues. And what do you see as maybe some promising? Right, so, um, I, so I'll say that I, I'm sometimes accused of being, um, you know, like the eternal optimist mm -hmm. in the face of our clients who are struggling. Um, but I am an optimist, and I guess one of my hopes, which is based on the data that we see daily, is that employers are beginning to value their workforce as an asset um, more than they have um, up until recently. And I will say also I've been influenced by the work of Zainab Tan around the ability for employers to benefit and to have a competitive advantage by investing in their workforce as an asset complemented by focusing on, on sort of operational efficiency and operational improvements. But if you take that concept further in terms of, of the work that we do, you know, what we see on a daily basis is, first of all, overwhelming demand for our services from employers. Um, employers asking us to come in and help and deliver trusted financial guidance because they believe their employees deserve better, but also because they believe that it's smart business. And they believe it's smart business because they see that when they deliver our services, their employees are more loyal, um, they're less stressed, um, and, and that it also sort of drives an overall better culture that they believe connects to greater productivity. Now, we don't have that data. And so far, not having the data hasn't prevented employers from 
telling us they don't need that data. Anecdotally, they see that. So the question is whether or not we have to wait for full employment or whether or not there's already evidence that a financially distressed workforce is harming productivity. And then investing in, and I don't mean just wages, but the overall package of financial wellness and asset development um, is truly a competitive advantage. And it's not just that it is a competitive advantage, but that employers are starting to see it as such. Therefore, um, tools like, so for example, what we believe is that EITC um, is you know, this example of unfulfilled potential. Employers all have the data that tells them whether or not their workforce is eligible for EITC. So an employer is in this wonderful position of ensuring their workers take advantage of what is probably the single best um, opportunity to help someone get out of poverty. Employers are now asking us to help them design that tool so that they ensure their workers are taking advantage of that. And that's pretty low-hanging fruit. So that, I mean, that sounds like one way uh, in which help can be replicated. I mean, more organizations like yours. Delivering, yes. Possibly more employers having, having that um, resource available to them and to their employees. Yes. Okay. I don't know if That's you want instructive. To add any uh, optimism to the. <laughs> Boy, um, well, I, I think we, obviously, we have to preserve things like the EITC, mm -hmm. um, preserve as many of the supports as we possibly can at this moment in time, because I do agree that those supports are essential, uh, particularly to our, to our population. Mm -hmm. um, but I do also think that we, we really need to look local, right? We've needed to look local for a long time. We, we have um, initiatives happening in Chicago now where hospitals who had never thought about how much power they have and just their hiring practices on a day-to-day -day basis and how they need to look towards the community and build pipelines into the very neighbors that they have next door in their own community. And so there's, um, there's just heightened, uh, more enlightened thinking on the part of those local institutions where if they just change some practices, we can open a whole lot of doors. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm optimistic about that, but I'm also very concerned uh, that, that the net effect of those local efforts are just going to get taken over uh, by the loss of supports uh, at a federal, uh, a federal level. level. And they will get taken over. The scale tried, of that is yeah. just too big. Have you tried to build work and wealth strategies into your operation there? I mean, you talked a lot about education, but beyond we, we that. Do, we do, absolutely. Yeah. So what we, what we ensure is that those financial supports, those financial coaches are available from the moment the learner has decided to be a part of our uh, learning platform because okay. they need those supports while they're learning and then they could take advantage of the increased earning opportunities that they have later on once they get the better job. And so we've seen uh, great impact when we do that. Um, let, me, yeah. let, me, let me jump in, on the, jump in on the optimism side. Okay. So as a professor, I'm very privileged. Um, one of my privileges um, is that I get to present my work um, all over the country, a lot of different places. Um, and I only do it in a way that puts me in touch with community-based organizations and grassroots organizations. And we have a number of partnerships with those organizations across the country. And, and that's the optimism of seeing the work mm -hmm. that's being done on the ground, um, of organizations that are leading folks who want to get to a better place. It's part of our job 
to get their hurdles out of the way. It's to get the hurdles of policy in DC, of policy at the state levels, um, that provide the obstacles for um, employer-based retirement pensions not to exist. So quick examples. State of Illinois spent, what is it now, like five years, Ida, working on uh, patching a hole for workers employed, workers who work uh, at small and medium-sized uh, shops that didn't have access to uh, retirement security. The state of Illinois passed a law that provides that to happen. The state of California is in the process of implementing a sort of similar law, all both of which finding the hole in the system that existed for large groups of people, <laughs> predominantly workers of color because of the sectors that they were involved in. Oh, from my point of view, win-win. Uh, the Treasury Department, the MyIRA, something a little different, but also trying, trying to fill a hole in the system. Political. Yeah, those are, those are policy. Those are, those are actions. Lobbying had to be done. The, ground, the groundswell, the community organizing, had to push that forward. Now comes along a congressman in Washington who wants those, who wants federal legislation to override those state legislations because the M word is being used. Mandate. Employers are mandated, they think, to provide retirement pension plans for their workers if you have 25 or more workers. So th those are the, the, the sources of optimism in the organizations, the people, the policy across the country, but it's the obstacles that we still, mm -hmm. um, we really have to be very aware of and struggle against. Jerry, what do you see as the potential for employers to help address work and wealth challenges of, of low and moderate income families? You've talked about policies being rolled back, and I mean, so I mean, it seems like it might, it might be more up to employers. And yeah, I mean, right um, now, you know, I think the connection that that Justine was making was interesting, and I sort of like the fact that he said, you know, we're we're going to do this even before we get the data, which I, I commend. Uh, <laughs> a lot of times, economists will explain to you why your good idea isn't really as good idea as good an idea as you thought, and. You know, I'll the economists might be wrong. <laughs> um, uh, so um, I do think I do think there is uh, really some some mileage to be uh, made in that particular space. We happen to have a pretty low productivity problem right now in the economy. Productivity growth is is very low, and it's really hard to raise living standards when uh, when that particular metric, output per hour, is growing as slowly as it's been. And I think that one of the reasons is we do divest in our workforce. I mean, we have a couple of examples here of actual investment, but um, there's not enough of that. And you know, we need to multiply these people by a large X factor, so there's a lot more of that going on. Uh, but I do think that ki the, the kinds of things that Tom was just describing on the ground and that Justine and Juan are doing are obviously germane and relevant. You know, I will say a bit about this kind of tight labor market thing. Um, so, you know, Chicago and New York, the, obviously you can find groups with high unemployment rates in those cities, but the unemployment rates are very low in those places. And by the way, today as we speak, about three hours ago, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates because they think the economy is maybe growing a little too quickly, getting a little too hot. The, the unemployment rate is close to what they think full employment is. Now we can argue about whether that's a good idea or not. Certainly there are populations whose unemployment rates are multiples of the, over, of the average. 
Um, but that said, we do have uh, a labor market wherein um, investing in your workforce is actually going to have to be a, is going to be a smart and necessary thing, or you risk leaving money on the table, because if demand gets strong enough and you're unable to meet uh, you know the the, the the demand for the product or service you're selling because you're you're disinvesting in your workforce, or you're not hiring the folks, or you're unwilling to bid wages up to get and keep the workers you need. So in that sense, uh, the, 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 the tightness of the overall job market could be a real asset. Okay. Um, so we're going to start a Q&A in a few minutes, so please start thinking of your questions, audience. Um, and we're just going to talk a little bit more about politics here. And uh, as we move into that, Tom, I wanted to ask you a question, because clearly the anxiety, the economic anxieties of uh, middle class, particularly the white working middle class, is what helped get Donald Trump elected as president. And I wanted to ask you, since you've studied race, racial inequality quite a bit, do you think those economic anxieties among, among many white working class people have eclipsed the, um, the attention placed on minorities and their Wow, I get that question. <laughs> it's nothing none of us have thought about. Um, uh, it's before and since November. Um, I think a lot of what we've been saying in, in terms of, of the landscape, especially uh, since the early 1970s, is really a story for everybody about um, stalled mobility. It's a story about stagnating standard of living. It's about families having to compensate in ways that make them work harder, uh, have less leisure time, the, all, all kinds of ways families compensate for that. Um, in an era of increased uh, ratched up inequality, right? yes, white workers are hurt. Yes, white workers are feeling pain of that. It's the first time in a, quite a while that, if I can use the, the, the phrase white workers, are, are, are feeling a similar kind of pain, a similar kind of status anxiety that other ethnic and racial groups in the United States have been feeling for much longer periods of time. So it's, it's an and question. It's not a, a but or an or question. It's race and economics that, that's at play here. I do think uh, that uh, in the electoral cycle, um, the attention, the media attention, clearly got riveted to what, what, what's the base of this right-wing movement. Mm -hmm. And it gets articulated, and in some ways accurately so, as a group that's in American society that is fastly losing its privilege or dominant status. White workers, white middle class compared to workers of color, um, uh, middle class, uh, African Americans, Latinos, Asians, immigrants, etc. Uh, in that in that dialogue, there has been clearly has been and continues to be a lot of pandering to that anxiety, and that the pandering to the anxiety is the answer, not the answers that we're talking about, not the answers that go upstream to where those problems are are created, and talk about the structures of work, that talk about unions, that talk about paid leave, that talk about retirement benefits that could ameliorate um, and make a U-turn to the living standard of, of many of the groups that we're talking about. So for, for me, 
Um, it's, it's where the focus is put in any one conversation, and I will just say, I scream at my television set. <laughs> Every time um, some hotshot journalist sits down and says, now we're going to talk to a group of real Americans. You're not talking about me, right? No. <laughs> no, I'm definitely not. And, and the real Americans are, are middle-aged or old white workers. I see. There's a group of real Americans that includes a lot more diverse set of folks than that. So but that, get, that gets okay. defined as, as the norm. It's a good lead into our final question before Q&A. Um, you don't all have to answer this. Time is of the essence. But clearly, uh, a lot has changed politically in this country in the last few months <laughs> and weeks. And there are new movements uh, developing calls for progressive change. I just wonder what opportunities and risks do you see emerging for closing this gap between work and wealth in the coming years? Opportunities or risks? Just one. <laughs> I'll throw out a risk. One each, okay. So I'll just say really quick, we're all about delivering trust because we believe that at the end of the day, relationships uh, are critical to how we manage our money, to how we manage our jobs, and you know the relationship between borrower and lender, or where you're saving your money. All of these things rely on trust and being able to feel comfortable sharing your information, comfortable sharing your money. Um, and the erosion of that trust is going to erode the ability for low-income individuals to feel like they can actually um, take advantage of products and services that, that are critical to them getting ahead. So my take is, is the, the fear factor that is now prevalent in the communities we're serving. Okay. Um, our clients are going into hiding. Okay. And, um, and I'll just sort of leave it at that. I, I, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say the, the, um, the, the biggest risk, I think, and my biggest fear is further divisions among people in poverty. Um, when you look at, and, and we're going to do everything we can to combat that, right? But when you look at, we need to have empathy for, and we need to have a, a, a reach out of relationship to people in rural communities. Um, we need to we need to build stronger bonds in urban communities, uh, but the pressures are going to be really strong. When you talk about cities like mm -hmm. mine and say we're going to be a sanctuary city, a welcoming city, and you know the pressure of not getting certain federal funds or people in communities thinking they're not going to get federal funds, those are real pressures that go against mm -hmm. poor people working together, and we're going to have to work extra hard to keep those coalitions going. So sure. on, on the, oh, wait, let, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, let's. I'm just gonna let Jared. Go. That's so fine. Go ahead. Um, okay. So, um, I see risks. Okay. <laughs> um, and you know, we've been talking about inequality, mm -hmm. and uh, we heard earlier uh, about Aspen's interest in it. Um, so a lot of the inequality that's going on, I've been describing, is a function of structural changes in the economy and the absence of policy to offset it. Uh, there's a great risk of that inequality being uh, severely uh, increased uh, by um, a redistribution upward. Um, this week, so this is current events, this week we learned about a conservative health care plan, which by the way, health care obviously should have been mm -hmm. on my list of work supports, critical work support for the kinds of people we're talking oh, about, yes. health care coverage, obviously. Um, we, we learned about a plan that wants to cut Medicaid by 25% and take that almost trillion dollars and give it to the wealthiest, slice, a pretty narrow slice, give it to the wealthiest 
Americans. That would make Tom's statistics look even more skewed. Now, who sat in a meeting and said, I've got a great idea. You know, let's, let's take 25% of Medicaid and give it to rich people in tax cuts. And everybody said, yeah, good idea. Yeah, that's right. That's, yeah, let's go with that. And, you know, and I'm not being too partisan here because even Republicans are saying, no, sorry, that goes a little too far, uh, at least in the Senate. And then tomorrow, we're going to see a budget that significantly undermines a lot of the kinds of ideas that we've been talking about here. So the sort of barriers that Tom said, you know, the one thing you want to do is try to not place barriers in front of people. Well, some of the kinds of programs they're going to get whacked in the budget that's going to be introduced tomorrow are very much about, I, I think, you know, rebuilding those barriers. Okay. Tom, close so, it out. Oh, dear. <laughs> Final words. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for, for showing up on a very windy evening. <laughs> um, risk. So, um, or opportunity. Uh, I, I'm going to go <laughs> risk, op risk opportunity. Okay. Thank you. Um, we, we need to have a balance. I think a balance between maintaining a progressive vision for where we want American society to go. Uh, and we need to stay dedicated to that project. At the same time, we need to balance that with the resistance and the protections that need to, ha that need to happen that, help, that will help us in turn build the kind of supports in terms of population and movements and maybe nudge certain, a certain political party or two to get us to that vision. Risk, in particular. Uh, just an example. Sometimes we don't realize um, not how good we had it, but a system that was working fairly well for people we're concerned about, very low-wage workers, until it's attacked and it's gone. The, the hour and wage division of the Department of Labor mm -hmm. in the last administration built up its inspectors by 1,200, enforcing wage theft and other protections of very low-wage workers. I don't think I have to complete the sentence about what's going to happen to that, to that division. That's a protection that was built up over time, a system, a policy that we need to keep protecting. On the, on the positive side, now I do think um, that more of the opportunities given the current uh, political environment in DC and in many of the states we do need to keep looking at the states as laboratories, as pilots, whether it's children's savings accounts, whether it's retirement plans, whether it's baby bonds, whether it's labor protection, whatever it is uh, that we find can work and work well and then start to move that to other states and then, and then finally to nationally. Finally, um, Jared just laid out the, 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 the changes in, in Medicaid. Before that happens, we should demand, sorry, I get totally rhetorical here. We should demand what's demanded of uh, social justice and progressive advocates whenever we suggest something. Uh, before we give the wealthy that money, I want to see the random controlled double blind study in the field for a decade with data done by RAND. And then we'll decide if it was a good idea or not. Okay. So we're going to move to Q&A. And this, he has had his hand up for quite a while. We've left three minutes for Q&A this hour. I would, like, I would like to have heard perhaps a little bit of a focus of the questions on what are the opportunities or uh, challenges that might have come from other countries than the United States in these areas 
whether it's workforce or health care or income transfer or even housing, which then affect the overall economies, the wealth and the income, uh, because there could be cautions or there could be causes of optimism from other countries. We don't clearly have enough time, but I would suggest in other contexts to frame the, the, the discussion a little bit more broadly than just the United States. Quickly, let me just say two areas where other countries um, do uh, health care and education in such a way that affords lower income people a much better chance to build wealth. Yes. Right here. Hi, thank you all very much. First, I want to call attention to Sheldon Whitehouse's incredible book called Captured, The Corporate Infiltration of American Democracy. It documents some of these issues very strongly. Questions, uh, the Supreme Court has a role to play in tilting certain legislation or supporting it, um, the role of housing vouchers, the role of HUD. We haven't even talked about that and how critical that is. There is a lot to be very concerned about. And yes, you've talked about the role of the grassroots encountering some of this. The power of the Chamber of Commerce is huge. And the role of corporate money, including the Koch brothers, is tremendous. We can work against it, but it's a very uphill fight. I'd love comments on that. like to address that? Um, so I mean, I, a lot of my comments were supposed to be directed towards that and, and were short for time. So um, I can amplify what I was trying to say uh, afterwards. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I, I, think the, I think the interaction of concentrated wealth and money in politics is a huge part of the problem we're talking about. Yeah, I would also point, you know, we've, we've talked a little bit about some, some good examples and some, mm -hmm. uh, some better employment practices. I think if we not necessarily always just go to the Supreme Court or, 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 or the macro level. If we talk about the institu institutions we're involved in, our employers, and in a very positive way, I'm going to call out Prudential. All right? Prudential has started a process that looks at who, where their procurement comes from, where their supply chain comes from, and thinking about are there ways of points of disruption in that where those systems can be transferred, trained over time, to entrepreneurs and workers of color. Right? It's an institution. Right? It's a large employer. There are lots of places like that uh, that understand, um, in the long term, a satisfied workforce, a diverse workforce, is not only more efficient, it's more stable. Did I get it right? <laughs> <laughs> Just to add on that, I think we have to pay more and more attention to uh, local communities and grassroots leadership. I mean, and 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 in in political parties too. By the way, I mean, if you look at the representation of staff in both the Bernie Sanders and the Clinton campaigns at the early stages of Latinos, it was horrendous, horrendous. And you know how we got it up? We hacked their website. We hacked them. We found out just how many people were working for them. And, you know, all of a sudden, it went up. Why do we have to do that, you know, in the very institutions that we've been traditionally a part of? Mm -hmm. The power of shaming. The power mm -hmm. of shaming. Other questions? Sir? I'd like to... Uh, 
There's the microphone for you. Like, uh, Justin, one, I'm the, the perpetual optimist. I'm Ibrahim uh, Mukman. I'm an economic development consultant. But one of the things that nobody's mentioned today is you're in Washington, D.C., and probably like maybe New York and Chicago. There's a significant number of people every month coming home who are returning citizens, ex-offenders. How, how does that deal with that? Critical to the well-being of our overall society. I mean, obviously, we have to decrease the number of people going in, right? and provide more opportunities for those um, that are coming out. But the real solution, I believe, is in electing people to office and state's attorney's positions and in the, um, goes back. You know, the, the big difference, I tell you, in Cook County, you got Sheriff Dart now and you got Kim Fox, okay? So you got the possibility of real systemic change that will change that pipeline um, starting now. There's a set of fair hiring practices, and I don't. Uh, you, you may know more about their effectiveness than I do, but one of them I've written about is Ban the Box. I'm yeah. sure you're familiar with that. And uh, there's been some research on both sides, but I've tried to weigh it with a, you know, with a really without a thumb on the scale. And to me, it looks like it's 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 helpful. And for people who don't know, this is that if someone has a criminal record, Ban the Box means you can't ask them to check the box of, uh, acknowledging their criminal record at the very beginning of the interview in which case they get filtered out before they even a chance. It doesn't mean that the employer never gets to ask, but it does ban that box right at the get-go. I, I think that's been an advance, but mm -hmm. the pipeline issues to me are, are magnitudes greater. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for coming. I hope, I hope it was informative for you.